how God saves us and brings us into relationship with him, and that he's building a people, that he's building a people where, where he can be known, where his presence can be experienced. But he now, in the last couple weeks, has gone to start to talk about very specific areas of our life. We talked about government and the laws. We talked about work, and, and later he'll talk, about, um, he'll talk about injustice from people that persecute you for being a Christian. And this week and next week, we start to talk about marriage. And this is what Peter gets into. And here's what I want to just point out to begin with, is that God cares about all of our life, every part of it. That oftentimes we can think, okay, God cares about Sunday, or he cares about this aspect of my life, or maybe this aspect of my life. But in truth, God cares about every single piece of our lives. So sometimes in the Bible, there's very broad instruction that says things like love people. And that's okay. Yeah, that's a very broad principle. And then other times there's very, very specific, like we looked at last week, what do you do when you have an unjust boss? Or what should our relationship be with the government? Very specific things. And so tonight Peter begins to talk about marriage and specifically tonight will be a word for the ladies and for the wives, but really it's for all of us. So don't tune out. Peter uh, writes this to Christians and everybody would have heard this. And so it's really important for for all of us. And so we'll just jump right into it. I'll read the text and then we will see what Peter's talking about here. Okay. So here is what he says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. First Peter Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So here is what Peter's describing. This is a very difficult situation that he writes this letter to. Remember, Peter's writing this letter, if you've been here the last several weeks, he's writing this letter to Christians, and in the opening chapter, he calls Christians elect exiles, which is to say that you have been accepted, you've been chosen by God, and yet you live in a world that's not your home. And so there's a lot of times that there's going to be difficult situations that come along with that. So he's writing now to women that find themselves in a very difficult situation. He writes to Christian women that find themselves married to somebody that's not a Christian. This is a very difficult situation, Peter says. He takes a big chunk of his letter to address this situation. So maybe you're in this situation, maybe you're not, um, but again, there's going to be principles throughout this for, for all of us, and, and also, especially for you wives, he'll talk about just general principles of what it means to be a wife. But why is this such a difficult situation? Why does Peter feel the need to address this situation? A Christian woman married to someone that's not a Christian Man, why, why does Peter say this is an important situation that I should address? Why does he think that this is such a big deal that's difficult? Because it's not common wisdom that that's a difficult situation. 
mean, there's plenty of people that are married to someone that is of a different religion or a different faith than them, whether that's Christian and Buddhist or, or just Christian and, and agnostic or something. There's plenty of people that are in relationships like that. So why is it such a big deal that Peter feels the need to address it? It's, that's not something that necessarily in our culture as seen is really that big of a deal. I remember when I was a waiter and I was uh, doing side work, which is the part that everybody hates, where you have to do non-waiter things like roll silverware. And if any of you have been in that industry, you know it's horrible. And so rolling silverware and just doing that for 17 hours and talking to, or what it feels like, and talking to somebody, and they were saying, hey, I'm dating this uh, girl and she's not a Christian and what do you think I should do? And, and so I talked with him and said, hey, probably not a good idea. And, and then there was someone over here listening and it's a restaurant, so it's kind of noisy. And they came up to me and they said, hey, I think that was really wise. I was like, oh, well, thank you. I'm a very wise person. Thank you for noticing. I've been trying to get people to notice that. And he said, I think it was really wise that you said that it really just, as long as you love each other, it doesn't matter what kind of religion you are. I was like, um, I think it might have been a little, I, and then it was very awkward because I was like, actually, that's the exact opposite of what I said. But thank you. Do, am I still wise? And it was, I wasn't um, in his eyes at that point. And so it's not, it's, that's just not something that's commonly thought of as wise. It's, hey, if you love one another, great. That's what matters. But Peter says, man, if you find yourself in this situation, it's going to be really difficult. And he, he wants to care for people in that situation because it's a, it's a big deal. And, he, and here's why, okay? Because if for you, being a Christian or following Jesus, if for you, that is something that's just kind of a, an add-on to your life, then it really doesn't matter who you're in a relationship with. It really doesn't matter because it's more in that scenario, kind of like a sports team. So if you're a, a Broncos fan, that's a part of your life. You might wear a jersey, you might spend some time on Sunday or Thursday, you might once in a while post something on Facebook, you might go to the game once in a while. I mean, it's, it's a part of your life, but it it's not something that's so important that you couldn't be married to a, a, a 49ers fan, right? I mean, people are all the time married to people of different teams. That's not something that in marriage counseling that I would say, hey, I don't, I don't know about this. I don't know if it's going to work. And maybe Broncos Seahawks, but I don't, I mean, if it's, you know, the Niners, then it's kind of, okay, that's, that's probably okay. It's not, but a lot of times that's what Christianity is. It's an add-on to our life that's important, that's a, that we spend some time doing, but it's, it's not the core of who we are. But the way that Peter has talked about what it means to be a Christian, here's some of the language that he's used. Think about this. He has said, it's birth. So to become a Christian is you're born. So that's not, I mean, no one would say that, I hope, about being a Broncos fan is like a new birth to me. Right? I mean, if you said that, well, you might have some problems. But that's, that's how Peter talks about what it means to be a Christian. It's a whole new birth. He says that it's a new citizenship. So I'm a citizen of an entirely different country now. I'm a part of an entirely different nation. I'm a part of entirely different people. So then all of those are identity-shifting things, right? That's the core of who you are. And for you, that's what it means to be a Christian. Then that, that means that somebody that does not share your faith would never be able to know the true, truest you. They would never be able to know the core of who you are. It would be, I mean, to use Peter's language, it would be that you are in a relationship with someone that has not yet been born and lives in another country. 
So you're in a long-distance relationship with someone that hasn't been born yet. That would be kind of difficult. If it's the core of who you are, someone would never really be able to understand you and never know the depths of your soul. They don't, they don't, it's, so it's not just this kind of, hey, don't do this because, because we don't like these people and we like these people. It's Peter's, I mean, the, the Bible's teaching on this is that someone would never know the core of who you are. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. It's what Jesus talks about. And Peter writes to a different kind of situation, though, because these people, this is not a choice. This is where they already find themselves. So this would be someone that was a a Christian woman that, well, sorry, this would be a couple that then the, the, the wife becomes a Christian. But now she's married to somebody that's not a Christian. So she finds herself in this situation and says, okay, now what do I do? Now I've found myself in this situation and that can be very difficult and lonely. And so Peter wants to address it, but not just difficult and lonely. It can actually, it could have also been very dangerous. It's because in that time, often women were largely viewed as property, that they were just kind of the property of their husbands. But then Christianity comes on the scene Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, 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 no. People have equality and dignity and women can learn and and they can be equal before God and they can have their own relationship with God. But that was not the wisdom of the time. There's a Greek historian named Plutarch who says this. This is, he was writing about the same time that Peter wrote his letter and here was the common wisdom. Here's Here's what he said. A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. That was the common wisdom in this time. So now you've got this woman that becomes a Christian and finds herself in a culture that believes that. In a culture that believes she's her husband's property, that she should worship her husband's gods. And that's a very difficult situation and possibly dangerous for her. The husband might have wanted to abuse her or or had bitterness towards her. The husband would have probably been very embarrassed by her. She's no longer participating in the things that they used to participate in together, going to the pagan temples and following the same outlook on life. And, And now, what does she do? Difficult, dangerous she herself might want to mistreat him. She might want to think about him. Hey, you're not a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm better than you. She might have kind of a spirit of indignation towards him. So all around, not a great scenario to find yourself in, right? So what do you do? What do you, what do you tell this woman to do? Leave him? Preach sermons to him? Demand her rights? What do you tell her to do? Here's what Peter says. First thing he says is, what's the goal in the first place? What are you after? What what should be the goal in this situation? And really, this is what Peter has been talking about throughout the whole letter, and and specifically the last chapter and a half, that he's got in mind a purpose. He's got in mind an what he says is, show how good God is with your life. That's what he said in chapter 2. 
live such good lives among the people that don't know God, that they would see your life and glorify God. They would see how good God is. That we live lives proclaiming His excellencies. So what Peter says to the wives is they should be thinking, how can I win Him over? See, there's a purpose, there's a goal in mind. How do I win Him over? How do I show how good God is with my life. That's what Peter talked about when he said, what if you find yourself in a situation where your boss is mean and unjust? That's what he talked about when he said, what do you do in a government that you're a citizen of? That's what he talked about just on the broad scheme of things. That's what he'll talk about later of how do you show how good God is with your life? And as we get into this, is that a question you ask? Is that a question that you think about? Because as you thought about that woman finding herself in that situation, what kind of counsel would you give her? And what would be the framework through which you gave that counsel? What would be the goals that you had in mind for her? Maybe just happiness or fulfillment or comfort. Peter says we should always be thinking through, what is the purpose? How can I show how good God is with my life? You, if, if, if you don't, get that, you won't understand Peter. Because that's just his drum. I mean, if you were to sit down with Peter, that's just the drum he beats throughout the letter over and over again. You want to talk about government? Okay, here's the framework you should be looking through. You want to talk about a bad boss? Okay, here's the, you want to talk about marriage? Okay, you want to talk about, he's just always beating that drum. How can you show how good God is with your life? Is that a question that you are asking? Is that a framework that you view your time and your money and your goals and your plans? And your, is that a framework that you view how you make decisions through? Will this help me to show how good God is? Peter won't make sense without that. So he starts with, here's the goal. Here's the goal. We all have options. We all have choices. We all have paths that we can take. And Peter says, let's start with this. What's the goal? And he says to wives, how could you win him over? Which is that, they, that he would know Jesus. And here's what he's going to tell us. There's two common ways that we could go about that that would be wrong. And then there's a handful of ways that he recommends we go about that. So here's the first way that often someone in that situation might tend towards. And again, this is particularly for the ladies and the wives, but... We can all learn from what Peter says. First thing, false strategy number one is words. He says that we should live a certain kind of way, that wives should live a certain kind of way, that the husbands would be one without a word. Without a word. See, the tendency in that situation would be to do what? To probably criticize the husband tell him he's doing the wrong thing, to use words to say, hey, you don't believe the right things. You're not acting the right way. You're not treating me the right way. You're not doing things the right way. You're not, you're wrong. Or to use words to say, I'm right. Here's what I believe, and it's the truth. Here's what I believe, and it's right. Here's what I believe, and it's, the tendency would be to say, I'm going to use my words to change you. I'm going to use my words to, to get out of this situation that's difficult. I'm going to use my words that would be the tendency. That's a common temptation. 
but let me say something. There's a time for this, right? I mean, Peter has already said, Peter's already talked about earlier that we should proclaim Jesus' excellencies. So it's not that we never use words. I mean, the Bible is filled with saying, use your words to talk about Jesus. Jesus himself says, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth will speak. So if in your heart there is a treasuring of Jesus, you speak about him. So it's not that Peter is banning wives from talking. Okay, that's not the situation. But what he is saying is if your words are relied upon, if that's what you're going to rely upon to see your husband change, then it's probably not the best thing to rely upon. That if you're going to rely on your words to change him, but your life doesn't match up, that can actually be more damaging. Haven't you seen that? Someone that says, man, I love Jesus and Jesus is great and he's the most important thing in my life and I serve Jesus and I follow Jesus and he's so good and then in their life, it doesn't reflect that. That our lives speak louder than our words. I mean, we all know that. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. Talk is cheap. That's what Peter's getting at. Peter's getting at, if if you're going to use your words It should match with your life. So don't rely on your words to win him over. Don't rely on your words because it it often falls short. And often people drown out words. So this is often one of the strategies that's used that he says not to. Second is looks. He says not to let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. So here's what Peter says, that women in this situation might be tempted to try to get what they want through their appearance, through the way they look. Now, I don't believe that he is saying this is something that's true of all women, but ladies, I mean, isn't that a common temptation? Not that guys are immune to that, but Peter's writing here to women. Isn't that a common temptation? To get what you want through the way you look? In a situation like this, where it's difficult, I mean, imagine this woman, and she wants to win her husband over, maybe to treat her better, to appreciate her more, to notice her, to approve of her. Isn't a common temptation to use to say, I will use my looks for that? The way I look will get me what I want. The way I adorn myself with jewelry and braided hair, apparently very, very big back then. I will, I mean, it might be different things now, right? But I'll use that. I'll use that to get what I want, to, to get him to pay attention to me. I'll wow him with the way I look. So let's just kind of step out of this for a moment. I mean, isn't that true in many parts of life? If you want people to accept you and notice you and be drawn to you, a temptation can be, I'll use the way I look for that. I'll use the way I look. Now that's not, let me just make sure we point this out. This is not a prohibition against wearing gold jewelry or braiding your hair. I don't know if anyone has their hair braided in here tonight, but you might be unbraiding it right now. Like, oh crap, put on my copper instead of my gold. Um, that's not what he's saying because listen to this. He says, do not let the adorning be external. That's the main point. The braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. So 
If he was talking about you can't wear gold jewelry or braid your hair, he would also be saying you can't wear clothes. But that's often we use not wearing clothes as a strategy for how we look, right? So that's not what he's talking about. He's saying don't let that be what you use. Don't let that be what you use to get what you want. Don't let that be the, if you want acceptance and approval and love and appreciation to be noticed, are you pouring all your energy into how you look to do that? Is that what you're relying upon to stand out? So here's what Peter tells us not to do. Don't rely on your looks. Don't rely on your words. So what are we to do? What should we do? Well, Peter says we should use our lives. And this is, again, what he's said all throughout in each circumstance. Use your life to show how good God is. Use your conduct. Use your actions to show how good God is. And so what does that mean? Well, he breaks it down, starting at kind of the overarching level and then getting into specifics. And here's the first thing he says. He says a new way instead to to go about this. The first thing is submission. Now look, this is, I know, this is some of the most controversial stuff in the Bible, right? I mean, Peter says his opening line, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is some of the most controversial stuff in the Bible. I'm glad I didn't write it, but I'm just reading it. I'm just, I'm just telling you what Peter said. I mean, it's controversial. And partly, I think, because it's been really abused, the way that this has been shared the way it's been taught the way it's been used as many things can be that this can any teaching that jesus gives that that paul or peter or anyone gives can be abused and used for our own selfish purposes and this is one that in particular i think has been used in that way and so this can be controversial either because it's been abused or simply because honestly we just don't like it i mean a couple weeks ago we talked about being subject to the government don't like that. Being subject to an unjust boss, don't like that. Being subject to a husband, really don't like that. I mean, it's, you can just, I mean, it's, it's just, it doesn't matter where that word is used, we usually don't like it. That's not something natural to our spirits to go, yes, I want to submit. It's not something that we incline towards. So, let me talk about what this doesn't mean. Okay, because Peter says it and he uses this as the overarching category to instruct women here, to instruct the wives. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Okay, don't you wish you had my job today? (laughs) Um, First thing it doesn't mean is this. It does not mean that wives are inferior in any way, shape or form. So I've kind of traced through, but government, it says citizens are supposed to be subject to the, to the authorities, the rulers. None of us would say we believe there's inherent inequality with the value of a citizen and a, a governor. Same thing with, he talks about employers and employees or slaves and masters. That's, there's not an inherent inequality. He's not saying you are less than citizens, you are less than slaves, you are less than wives. There's not an inferiority. In fact, Jesus himself says that he submits to the Father. In part of Paul's teachings in in Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about how God, the Father, is the head of Jesus, and Jesus submits to him, just as wife is supposed to submit to her husband. 
So there's not any inferiority here. If Jesus submits, if that's something he does, there's no inferiority in saying someone should submit. None. So that's the first thing. It doesn't mean. Second thing, it doesn't mean, and he doesn't say, because you are less than or dumb or incapable or he's not kind of adding up all the male traits and adding up all the female traits and then saying, okay, it looks like uh, males are smarter, faster, stronger, and females are weaker and dumb, and so therefore you guys be the submitting ones. It doesn't say that, and that's not what the Bible teaches anywhere. A woman may be very smart and very strong and very powerful. It's not anything based on their characteristics. God could have changed it around and had it be the opposite. We don't necessarily know why this is the way it is, of how God ordained it to be, but it is. So it's not something about you are different, therefore you get the the lesser role. Number three, Peter says, to your own husbands, which means two things. This means women do not submit to men. This is very important. He is not teaching in any way a general kind of rule that says women submit to men. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. One man is enough, okay? (laughs) Submit to your own husbands. No one else's husband, and if you don't have a husband, this doesn't apply. Submission still applies because we all submit in different parts of our life, but it's not women to men. Again, he's not drawing lines in the sand of saying, women, you are less than men. He's saying that within marriage, within marriage, that there is an absolute equality and yet there's different ways we function. This is the teaching throughout Scripture, not just from Peter. It also means when he says, wives, to your own husbands, this, ladies, if you're married, to your own husbands means you shouldn't just think about wifeness in general. You should think about your particular husband and what does it mean for me to be his wife? Okay, number four, this does not mean that a wife does not seek to influence her husband or that she is supposed to check her mind or brain or feelings or creativity or giftings or any of that at the door. In fact, the whole point of the passage is she should try to influence her husband. Sometimes when people hear this, they think, oh, so I'm not supposed to say anything, do anything, think anything, the end. No, that's not what it means in any way. Again, the whole point of the passage is that she would seek to influence her husband. I mean, think about this also. I mean, we all would say, if you're a Christian, that we submit to God. Do you ever seek to influence God? I do, in prayer, right? We ask God to do things. We speak to him. We talk with him. I mean, so submission does not in any way imply shut up, Don't talk, don't bring your gifts and your abilities and your experiences and your intelligence to the table. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, that would be harmful to a marriage if a wife just said, hey, I'm just just supposed to submit, so you just do everything and I'll just chill here. That'd be bad. Men, you might like it for a day, and then after that, you would not. Number five, it doesn't mean ultimate allegiance doesn't mean ultimate allegiance. It doesn't mean I follow my husband into everything. It means I follow Jesus first. 
right? I mean, that's what this passage is about. I follow Jesus. He's the first man in my life. He's the king in my life. I follow him. And if you follow him, then I can follow you. So that's what submission is not. What is it then? And I will use uh, Pastor John Piper, who's a pastor, author that I uh, respect. And here's what he says the definition is. He says, it is the disposition. So that is this heart attitude, heart posture. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. Let me pause here. Next week we're talking about husbands, but a lot of times guys go, what? I want you to do that. We'll talk about that next week, okay? Sometimes men are enablers that say, I don't, I don't want a submissive wife because I don't want to do anything. I'll submit to whatever she says because I don't want to make any decisions. Also, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead, but I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. So, that's what submission is not. That's what submission is. It is this heart posture to say, I respond to your leadership. I respond to your leadership. Okay, everybody all right? <laughs> breathe. Okay, I'm trying to breathe. Anyone have an inhaler? Um, so in the situation that this woman finds herself in. It could be really easy to say, got a bad husband? All right, here's how you get what you want. Be a bad wife. Peter says the exact opposite. He says, you find yourself in this situation with a bad husband? You know what? Be an awesome wife. Excel at what God calls you to. Excel at it. Instead of feeling like I need to get my rights, I need to win, I need to fight, I need to do whatever I can to do that, whether it's my words or my looks, or Peter says, excel at what God's calling you to. Excel at what God's calling to in your life. This is for all wives, but special importance here. If you're married, ask your husband this week, tonight, ask him, how am I doing at that? Ask him, see what he says. And wait till next week when he gets to ask you some questions. It'll be fun. I promise for you. Maybe not for him. Um, second thing he says. Respect. So Peter says, the broad category is be subject to your husband's submission. And then he says to do that with respect and purity. So what is respect? This is the same teaching that Paul does when he talks on marriage in Ephesians and Colossians. That wives are to respect their husbands. So what does that mean? Well, first, respect is an attitude, right? It's a heart, again, kind of posture that says, I think well of you, and I have an attitude towards you of respect. I mean, think about this. How often, and again, we're all called to respect people, so guys don't tune out, but disrespect often starts in the mind. 
You start to think bad thoughts about somebody. You start to think about, you focus on the negative things, all the bad things they're doing, all the, ah, I can't believe, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Respect begins as an attitude. It begins as thoughts in your mind. Are you thinking good thoughts of your husband, or if you're not married, of other people in general, as we are all called to honor and respect everybody? Respect then is also with our words. Peter says this. He says that he's, he talks about Sarah in the Old Testament, the wife of Abraham, who respected her husband by calling him Lord. Now, guys, I don't recommend that you <laughs> suggest that from now on your wife call you Lord. I don't know how that would go for you. If you do it, let me know. Videotape it. It probably wouldn't go well, but back then, that was just, a, I mean, it's, it's, it, words that were used as respect. It was words of respect. So think about how often, if you're married or even just friends, that we disrespect people with our words. It's very common and accepted to have a group of husbands or a group of wives get together and say, oh, you know what the old lady did again? Blah, 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 blah. Very common. The guys are just kind of getting together and we're talking about this and yeah, well, let me tell you what my wife did. She won't stop nagging me about it. Very common disrespect. Same thing with wives. Very common to start talking, well, you, you know what my husband did? I keep trying to get him to buy me. I mean, are your words about your husband respectful? Do you use, I mean, how often do you point out his faults or mock him or make fun of him or just kind of talk down to him or about him to others. I mean, think about that. Are your words are your words disrespectful? Maybe not. But are they actively respectful? Are they actively seeking to build up your husband to point out how God's doing good in his life and the good things that you see? Are, is there active respect being given? This is very important for. Everybody, again, the Bible teaches we should respect everyone, but particularly, Peter speaks to the wives here. Ask your husbands this question if you're married. Ask them. Say, do I respect you? Do you feel like I respect you? Do you feel like I use my words to respect you? Ask him that question. Next thing he says is purity says, with all respect and purity. And this is getting at sexual purity, which is this. If a woman in this situation who has a husband, who doesn't love her the way he should, who isn't a Christian, she may be tempted to say, I'm going to go get that somewhere else. And it doesn't have to just be physical to say, I want someone to emotionally care about me. I want someone to pay attention to me. I want someone to go after my heart. I want someone to cherish me. I want someone to tell me I'm pretty. I want someone to, and to then say, I'm going to go get that somewhere else because this guy's not doing it. Purity is there's a devotion and a faithfulness to this man, even with all his imperfections and sin and weakness. That's purity. Wives, ask your husbands, do you feel like I'm solely devoted to you? 
or that I seek what I should be seeking from you elsewhere. That can be parents. Sometimes a wife will not be getting the care and emotional support from her husband, and so she seeks it out from her mom or dad. Sometimes it's coworkers. Sometimes it's movies. I need to feel loved, accepted, cherished, supported, so I get that somewhere else. Ask your husbands. Do you feel like I'm fully devoted just to you? Ask yourself the question. Often this is something that's happening in the heart that is not seen. And finally, he gives this. He says to focus on the heart. Focus on the heart. He says to adorn yourself with heart qualities, gentleness, and quiet spirit. So what's he talking about here? He says this, focus on the hidden person of the heart, which means often in a situation like that, when there's a difficult relationship, and this is true with any of us, if you have a difficult relationship, who are you focusing on? The difficult person. But he says, no, focus on your own heart. Focus on your heart. Focus on your heart and what God wants to do and cultivate inside of your heart. Heart qualities. Here's here's what he says. It can be really easy to spend all of your time and all of your money and all of your energy into pursuing the outward appearance. I mean, ladies, I feel for you because you go in the store or you turn on the TV or anything and it is just filled with cosmetics and beauty and beauty and be beautiful and look good and look like this and be like this and smell like this and beauty and beauty, outward, 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 outward. And what we talked about earlier is that then we can have that desire to go, okay, that's what I have to adorn myself with. That's what I have to use to make myself look good. That that is the pressure. I mean, you don't walk into a store and see Bibles on the magazine racks, right? There's not magazines that say 10 ways to be submissive to your husband. That's, I mean, that doesn't exist. Everything is get your flat stomach, get your, I mean, I'll stop there, but just do things, right? Be beautiful. That is the pressure. That is the temptation. That is the energy that can go, that that everybody really, that we can pour ourselves into. And Peter says, all beauty fades. He says that that beauty is perishable. It dies. No one ever held up a corpse and said, look how beautiful. Beauty, all, outward beauty, all fades and dies. All of it. Starts to wrinkle. You can moisturize it, but it's coming back. Starts to sag. You can try to do something, but gravity wins. It starts to, I mean, you, it, you can't stop it. Beauty all perishes. It does. And we try so hard to make it that it lasts forever. I want to preach a whole sermon and thought about it tonight on just the body image issues because it's so important and so 
I feel for you as someone that has sisters, as someone that views the women in this church as my sisters, as someone with a wife. I mean, the body stuff is so crazy. And there's so many lies and so much, it's horrible. And Peter says, all of that beauty perishes. It dies, goes away. It all dies, no matter what you do. Now let me say this so that you don't feel guilty if you're someone that wears makeup or a nice dress. Peter's not saying this is not a command to look ugly, okay? He is not, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, so react to that by doing this. Um, there's a, a woman speaker, author, uh, that's um, a wife of a pastor in Nashville that I really respect. Her name is Janie Ortland, and here's what she says just kind of on that piece of this passage. She says, I want to be quick to add that the Bible never encourages us to look dowdy or frumpy. I don't know what dowdy means, but it encourages us to look dowdy or frumpy. When Peter tells us how not to dress, he is speaking to our hearts, warning about excesses and preoccupations that detract from our true beauty as women. We may be tempted at times to overemphasize God's warning to us. He highly values the inner beauty of godliness, but we never see any excuse in scripture for slovliness. She's got great words. She quotes Proverbs 31 here. All her household are clothed in scarlet. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. How can we be winsome to those around us if we look as if we don't care about our outward appearance? Then we might become a distraction rather than a magnet to Christ. Remember, that's the whole purpose in the first place. Careless, shoddy dressing can attract just as much attention to our outward appearance as overdoing it can. So that's just if you felt guilty of like, oh my goodness, I like to kind of do my hair every once in a while, then listen to Sister Janie and what she says. But the overarching point is this. Where's your passion? Where's your focus? What are you pouring your heart into? What are you using to have people look at you and say, man, you look good? What do you, what do you want people to be wowed by? Peter says that what we should be focusing on is the hidden person of the heart, and it's hidden. In contrast to outwardly being this big show, it's hidden, which means no one might see it. No one might recognize it. There's this hiddenness about it, which means it's a lot harder. It's not easy. It's not easy to cultivate the things that Peter's talking about. It's easier to go spend some money on some clothes and some makeup and some hair, and and boom, there you go. It's a lot harder to cultivate the inner hiddenness of the heart. But what he does say is that God sees it and it's beautiful to him. That while maybe no one else will see it, God sees it. And God sees it as in his sight, he says, very precious. That he looks and says, ah, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. What's going on in your heart right there is beautiful. And the the heart qualities that Peter says is gentleness and quiet spirit, which is not talking about volume. It's talking about this peace that comes in your spirit from a trust, a reliance on God. That's what God looks at and says, that is beautiful. Okay? So, ladies, ask your husbands if you have them or when you find them, those questions. Ask them those questions. How am I doing at being submissive to you, respectful to you, pure? 
if you feel like, man, you know what? I'm not doing a good job at that. Confess that to your husband and tell him, okay? And bring him back next Sunday so he can confess to you. So here's the summary, and then we'll close with one final thing. Summary is this, difficult situation, difficult situation. And Peter says, tempted in that situation, we can go, I'm just going to convince him with my words, I'm going to change him with my words, I'm going to use my words, or I'm going to look good. I'm going to look good, and that'll get what I want. And Peter says, don't do any of those things. Instead, use your life, use your actions, use your conduct. Have a submissive disposition and respect and purity and focus on your heart. Do that. So then how do we do that? Where does that power come from? And this is what we will close with. Peter says it all depends on where your hope is. It all depends on where your hope is. The power to live this kind of life, whether you are a wife, a woman, or a man, the power to live that kind of life comes from hope. And where is your hope? See, the hope can be in the person to change, then everything will be okay. The person can be the circumstances to just work themselves out. The hope can be in ourselves to have the power to change someone. But where is your hope? And Peter says that we are to follow the example of Sarah who put her hope in God. Who put her hope in God. Which, what does that mean? What means that you look to God for everything that you desire? Your strength in these moments, joy in these moments, the love that maybe you're not receiving that you wish you were. You look to God and you turn to Him. You have hope in Him to provide in the middle of this situation. And it may, maybe it won't change, but you put your hope in God that if someone can change it, He can. And you put your hope in God that if it doesn't change, in the middle of it, your reliance is upon him. Now, why should we put our hope in him? Why should we trust him? And here's something really interesting that I saw studying this. Just a couple verses before Peter gets into this, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. And he talks about Jesus being one that died for our sins and gets into this whole thing. Here's, let's look at Isaiah. Here's what it says about Jesus' prophecy. Uh, Can you hit the next slide? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is talking about Jesus. Listen to what Jesus did not have. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not also what else surely he has borne our griefs this is what jesus did he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is amazing. 
what this says is that Jesus in a difficult situation wasn't beautiful. Wasn't how he looked that got him through it. It says he didn't open his mouth. There's no words that he used that got him through it. What did he do? He submitted. He submitted to the Father's will. He submitted He submitted his own will in the garden, if you remember, Jesus prays, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted. Why? To win you. Which is exactly what Peter tells wives. You want to win him? Might not be with your words. Might not be with your beauty, but with your life. And the power that we get to do that, and this is true for all of us, comes when we see Jesus did the very same thing to win us, to win us over, to bring us into his family, to pay for our sins so they were gone, to bring us life, to win us. Jesus went through all of that to win you. You want power to be able to hope in God in the middle of a situation like that? You've got to know that he's someone worth hoping in. And when you see what he went through to win you, you can trust him, you can hope in him, you know that he loves you, and that he's good. That's Jesus.